0: As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. We are in a, um, a season that's known as Advent on the Christian calendar, and we've been going through a series, an Advent series, over the past a couple of weeks. This is the third week in our Advent series, and we've talked a little bit about what that word means. That term, Advent, means coming um, or waiting And uh, it's a season where we're slowing down. We're on the Christian calendar in the midst of the busyness of life in the Christmas season. We're calming our hearts. We're slowing everything down. And we're focusing our gaze upon what truly matters in this life. And the Advent season has a built-in sense um, of both waiting but also a sense of celebrating, There is a a sense of slowing down, but there is a building of anticipation. In this waiting season, there is intended to be an increasing expectation of what's coming, of the sense of what's been promised and what must be fulfilled. And so there is both a calming nature to the Advent season, but also an exciting nature to the Advent season. And this really tells the story of of a journey. In fact, that's what the Bible is doing, this journey from promise into fulfillment. Journeys are are an interesting thing. They're filled with many ups and downs, and many of us are familiar with what it is to take a journey just in the physical, practical sense. Um, Our family loves to go on journeys. We love road trips in particular. And there are, generally speaking, two kinds of families um, who take road trips there are those families who like to plan out the route strategically to make multiple stops along uh, the journey to stop and smell the roses to visit all of the places to see all of the sights. it's a common cliche maybe to hear people say things like this it's not really about where you end up it's about how you get there sounds like a cheesy car commercial Or or you hear people say things like, listen, it's about the journey, not the destination. And I'll just tell you straight up, that's not me. (laughs) I fall into the second category of people who go on road trips or go on journeys. My goal is simply to get to the destination as fast as, amen, right? As fast as possible, right? I plan pee breaks around a communal cup in the back seat, And while I listen, I share in the sentiment that it is in many ways about the journey. I'm I'm totally exaggerating this a little bit. Of course, there is an aspect to enjoying the journey and and slowing things down. There's nothing wrong with that. But that sentiment in one sense, while, while I share it in part, I think statements like that are somewhat misleading. The reality is that every journey is ultimately about the end destination. It's the very reason you're on a journey in the first place. You're trying to get somewhere. It's not mainly, mainly about how you get there. It's mainly that you get there. And it's not really about the going as much as much. It's as about where you're going. There is a reason why the most important part of a treasure map is the X that marks the spot. The how you get there and what you need to go through, yes, it's important, but let's make no mistake about it. It is the X that matters most. That is what you're trying to get to. And the truth is that every soul is on a journey for joy, true joy. I mean, ultimate happiness, unquenchable satisfaction, And really, it's not that the journey is unimportant, it absolutely is, but the destination on this journey is ultimately what matters most. And Advent speaks to this desperate longing in the human soul for joy. It reaches into each one of our hearts, and it reminds us that we were, in fact, created for joy. We were created to know and experience ultimate happiness and true, lasting satisfaction. Every human heart craves it because that's the way God has made it. And this season of Advent leads us on a journey toward a final destination. It leads us towards the joy of Jesus. Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 2, we read about a journey that will end at Jesus Christ himself. And I want to read it with you. It's a story that you're likely familiar with. In chapter 2, verse 1, it reads this Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here we see in many ways what speaks to all of our hearts, a journey towards joy. And a journey towards joy is necessary first because of this sin, the great joy killer, This story begins with a great journey. Men come from far off, and they're looking for something very specific. These men come into Jerusalem, these wise men. They come all the way from the east, and they're coming with a very intentional purpose. They're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They have, in a sense, followed a divine treasure map and they are close to their final destination. They have been on a journey for a long time, perhaps even years up to this point. They've traveled thousands of miles over difficult and unfamiliar terrain. And right now, in this moment in this story, on this journey, the end is in sight. The anticipation has been building month after month as they have drawn nearer to that final destination. The wait is almost over. They can taste it. It's so close. These men are referred to here as wise men or magi. And I hate to ruin a good Christmas song, but I'm going to do it anyways. These are not three kings, as is often sung and often believed. In fact, it's likely that there are far more than three individuals in this entourage. They probably showed up with dozens of of leaders, of soldiers and servants It's likely that there would have been a large group of people who showed up into Jerusalem, which would have caused quite a stir in town and actually got the attention of the king himself, Herod, like we see actually happening. The Magi were wise men, they're not kings, but instead they're counselors to kings. In the Old Testament, for example, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were considered to be magi. They were wise men. They were educated men. They were men who were seeking the truth. They were trained to counsel and advise their king, um, something like the, the cabinet of a president or a prime minister. These men were learned men. They were noble men. And what we see here is that they were also wealthy men. They were men of great prestige, of great honor. They had incredible resources and time. And they could even plan a trip like this that would last them months and months and certainly cost them vast amounts of money. And they come... Not simply for the journey, they come for what is at the end of the journey. They come with a very specific purpose. They are seeking something very particular here, and it is spelled out in verse 2. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? But why is this journey necessary in the first place? Why do these men have to come from so far to this place on earth at this moment in time? What is it that provokes them to have to make this journey to get to this destination for this very specific purpose? Well, you see, the promise of a king is a reminder of the problem of sin. Biblically speaking, if you look at the storyline of the Bible, we know what Matthew has already laid out in the genealogy. It is necessary that a king comes who would be born of the line of David, who can be traced back all the way to the promise and the covenant made with Abraham, who would make all things right again. And you see, these men come from geographically far off. But that is, in one sense, a reminder that these men are spiritually far off. Paul uses this far off language in Ephesians chapter 2, specifically in verse 13 and 17, and he uses this language in relation to the Gentile pagan nations. He makes a distinction saying that the nations, the pagans, the Gentiles are far off from God. They're alienated from the life of God. In other words, they weren't the privileged Jews, the privileged people who had the prophets and the promises, who knew the revealed will of God and the revealed mind of God in Scripture. No, these men were spiritually far off. They lived in a pagan nation, they served pagan gods. They have not been given, like the Jews have, the promises and the prophets. But what we are reminded of here is that they were always included in the plan of God. If you go all the way back to the promise given to Abraham, we know at the very beginning that God intended to bless the nations. These wise men or these magi really do represent this idea that God is calling the nations to himself through the birth of this child. In fact, we see this represented in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3. It'll be on the screen behind me. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied long before this day. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. These men... Interestingly enough, have everything, consider this for a moment, everything the world has to offer. They have all the privileges of this world. They have all the money they need. They have all the power and the position. They have good reputation. They have good jobs in the world's standing. They are successful in their own right, and yet these men, while they have everything the world has to offer, they realize they really have nothing. Something is missing. There is an emptiness inside them that produces this longing to go on this journey, to travel as far as they did, over the terrain that they did. And you see, what's missing is joy, joy they couldn't find in all that this world has to offer. And I love what C.S. Lewis says, and again, I'll throw this quote on the screen. C.S. Lewis writes these words. He says, all joy reminds It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or about to be. And what Lewis is saying, I think, is reflective of all of human nature. Anytime we get to experience some kind of joy in this world from the things in this life, it is simply a reminder of something that our heart is truly longing for in a deeper, more meaningful way. It's a pointer, it's a sign leading us to something greater and more satisfying, more joyful than we can possibly imagine. And you see, these, these wise men have this need for joy that is, I think, obvious, and their search for joy is obvious. The lengths they're willing to go to is remarkable. And if you can just look at these men and and see that what's embodied here in this journey is really uh, the universal truth that humanity longs for joy. We are joy seekers by nature. And when we consider that, we remember that sin separates us from God. That's why this journey is necessary in the first place. That's why they're so far off, um, spiritually speaking, because of their sin, their human nature, the corruption that sin has caused, the alienation that that's produced in the relationship with God. Sin that separates us from God, listen to this, separates us from all true joy. To be separate from God is really to be missing the essence of true joy. That's true at the nature, excuse me, at the level of human nature, that all of us are separated from the God we were designed to be in relationship with, and therefore we are separated from the source of all joy. But but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me remind you that that is also true at the practical level in your life, that all sin ultimately separates you from true joy. Our daily decisions to sin are decisions about joy, our decision to pursue sin is ultimately a statement about what we believe in the moment will provide for us joy, of what will give us satisfaction, of what will meet our deepest longings, at least in the moment. Our decisions to sin point out where we believe we will ultimately find joy. And those decisions remind us that, again, by nature, we are joy seekers. We find joy, again, in all kinds of things in this life. Um, Some of them are deeply sinful. Some of them are moral goods. But all the joy we find in this world and in this life is a temporary joy. It is a, a fleeting joy. And in many ways, it is simply a taste of what we were meant to experience in full. You see, the joy we derive from earthly things is meant to point us toward this, secondly, God, the great joy giver. These men are seeking the king of the Jews. They saw his star when it rose, they said in verse 2, and they have come to worship him. Again, these magi were pagans. I want you just to consider who it is who's come all this way. They're pagans who are serving a pagan king with pagan gods, and yet here, the statement they make is that they have come to worship the king of the Jews. And what's so fascinating is that we see in this story that God speaks to these pagan men who worship pagan gods. He speaks to them in brilliant fashion. He places a star supernaturally in the sky to hang over Jerusalem. He calls to them through natural revelation, but in a supernatural way. The star likely had not been there before. This is something that is unique. And you have to see that God is putting a message in the sky for them. And that reminds us, by the way, that Christianity is not a religion for good people. It is for sinners who see their need for grace, and for those who listen when God calls to them. The Magi remind us that God seeks sinners, that God calls to those who are far off, and He desires to draw them near, to bring them near to Himself. These men followed this star for long months, but why, again, let's ask the question, did they follow this star in the first place? It's interesting to kind of contemplate how they ended up here, why they thought this star was significant, why they were willing to go to these great lengths to pursue this endeavor. Some people speculate that these men were astrologers, and there's some validity to this. It's a reasonable theory. It's more than likely that the wise men in the ancient world would have been well acquainted with the study of astrology. It was common knowledge in the, the pagan and the, the ancient world that A star could signify the birth of a king. A a new star in the sky was often believed to herald the birth of a significant person in the land over which that star shone, but I don't think that that explains all of the the nuances in this text. I, I don't think that accounts for how these men seem to know what they know. These men aren't just coming to um, some unknown place and they're not coming for some unknown king. They believe something very specific. They believe they have come to worship the king of the Jews. It's more than likely that these men had some access to the Old Testament scriptures. Parts of the Old Testament, some prophecies of the Old Testament, knowledge perhaps of the prophecies of Daniel, who lived in Babylon, remember, um, over the 70-year period of exile for Israel in that nation. Daniel, who was a magi himself, who was called to speak before Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself, who declared very specific prophecies to this king about a coming king and his kingdom that would triumph over all the kingdoms of the earth. Many people believe that these men knew specifically of the prophecy given by Balaam, Balaam who was um, an enemy of God's people but refused to prophesy against them as the Lord led him. He said these words that were, again, perhaps familiar to these magi who lived in the east, Numbers 24, 17. Listen to this prophecy from Baal, so specific. It says, I see him, but not now. Behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You see, anybody reading that in the ancient world would have known and understood that this was the declaration of a king who would rule over all kings. A king who was destined to be the king of the earth, a king of the universe. Herod, in this instance, inquires of the chief priests. These men come into his presence and they declare that they are looking for the king of the Jews. He gathers around him all of the chief priests. Notice this in verse 4. He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. That is um, the religious elite of the day. That is the people who would have been the teachers of God's people, of the nation of Israel. They would have known the scriptures. They would have been steeped in the scriptures. And he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And I love this. These men, they know exactly the answer to this question because they have the scriptures that are so clear about this. God has revealed this in the past. And what these men do is they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and listen to what it says. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, God had not been quiet about what he was going to do, about where this Messiah was going to come from, and and we have affirmed here again that the truthfulness of the Scriptures and the authority of the Scriptures, but I want you to see here um, is something very terrifying. There, There is here a terrifying reality. You see, you can be nearest to the truth and yet be farthest from the truth. You can have all of the access that you would have hoped to have to the truth. You could know the Scriptures backward and forward. You can be steeped in the Word of God. You could have committed it to memory, and yet your heart can be so very far away from God. Jesus continually rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of of his day for this very thing. They read the Scriptures... But they miss that these scriptures point to him. And that's exactly what these religious teachers of Israel do here. They know this truth, but isn't it fascinating they do nothing with this truth? They simply are content to give him the answers that he looks for. They're not looking to inquire any further about this child. I mean, you would think that if you had this kind of access, and then men come from far off saying, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And you had the answers, you would be hitching your train to that wagon, right? You'd be like, I'm going with you. That's not what these men do. That's not what they do at all. These religious leaders have no desire for the joy offered by God in the birth of this king. What's interesting is that if you look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, Matthew is consumed with this idea of promise and fulfillment. He goes to painstaking efforts to show us repeatedly about how Jesus answers um, the Old Testament prophets, how he is the fulfillment of all that they were prophesying about, And we've said this in the past, but let me remind you again, it's so critical to understand the context of this book. The primary audience that Matthew is writing to is Jewish. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and the primary focus of his letter is the kingdom of heaven. Over and over again, we read uh, Matthew speaking about the kingdom of heaven and the king of that kingdom, Jesus himself. He's showing over and over what it means to be a part of the kingdom. He's showing over and over what it means to bow the knee to the king. And in so doing, he is actually linking our joy to the king and his kingdom. And the offer of this joy is seen in a lot of profound ways throughout the gospel of Matthew. But I think the most profound way we see this this linking together of the kingdom of God and the king to joy is seen in a familiar parable in Matthew chapter 25. And we've talked about the parable a lot in this church. The parable of the talents. Where you have the master who gives a talent to um, one of uh, one talent to each of his three servants, and then he comes back from you know his time away, and he wants these um, individuals, these servants, to give an account for what they've done with the talent. And, and you have you know you know the story. One says you know I've made five um, talents, and one I've made ten. So they've they've taken it and it's been an investment. And Jesus, in response to those who have done well with what he's given them, he gives the familiar response, right? He says these words. We know it, right? Well done, good and faithful, what? Servant. And then he, he kind of rewards them, um, commensurate with how they have handled what he's given them. You know, you've served well, you've earned five, I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. But what's fascinating, listen, what's often missed is what he says after that. Do you remember what he says? Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. Now what does he say? Enter into the joy of your master. You see, the scriptures are consumed with this idea that we are to enter into the joy of our master. And the way to do that is by seeing the king in his kingdom. And this is nothing new. This is something we see from the very beginning of the word of God. You see, when God created the world and he gave it to Adam and Eve, he, he gave it to them to rule over. He makes Adam and Eve the first king and queen of the earth. The the dominion that they were supposed to have reflects the role that they had as kings and queens. But what we see in the first chapter of the word of God is that we were actually made for joy That we have a God of joy. In in the beginning, God creates the world. and, And after he creates, he says, this is good. He repeats it over and over. It's good, it's good. And humanity, mankind is very good. In other words, God takes delight in his creation and in his creative works. His first act toward humanity is to bless them. Did you notice that? And this is language of joy. He blesses them. Joy at the very beginning of the Bible fills the entire earth. It fills all of human existence. I mean, just consider this for a moment. The very first command God gives to his children is to be fruitful and multiply. And he's not talking about doing math equations. The very first invitation he gives to humanity is to come and feast, come and feast from all the trees that you have before, all of the food that's around you, come and feast except for one tree, only one. Everything else is for your joy. And that one tree, by the way, the one tree they were not allowed to eat from, that's because God is reminding them that while they are to enjoy the gifts from God, they are ultimately called to look repeatedly to the giver of all the good gifts. You know, sadly, many people believe that God is a killjoy, not the giver of joy, Maybe you've come in here today, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been convinced or persuaded by your experience with Christians or maybe in a church environment that church is, is not about giving joy, it's all about killing joy. That God is not a God who wants you to enjoy life, he wants to steal the fun from your life. That God is somehow forcing us into obedience against our will and against all of our joy. He wants us to do all the right things and have no fun while we do it. But what we see from the beginning is that God is a God of joy, and he has invited us to enjoy the many gifts he has given us. Pleasure was God's idea, not the devil's. God invented taste buds and nerve endings. He gave us food that tastes incredible. He doesn't just give us something that would fuel our bodies or charge our batteries. He gives us food to enjoy so that we can literally taste and see that the Lord is good. So go crazy this Christmas season, okay? Throw your diet out the window, okay? It's biblical. Enjoy the good things that God has made. Some of you are going to hate me after Christmas. You're so like this. This ten pounds—that's your fault, Pastor. I just, I just want you to see this: that God is a God of joy. And by the way, God is for your joy. In fact, let me go as far as to say that God is for your joy more than you are for your joy. He cares more about your joy than you do, and he longs to provide for that joy in ways that you never could. You are made for joy, hardwired for joy. And joy, by the way, it's helpful maybe to understand what I mean by that. Joy or happiness, are two synonymous terms. They're not a feeling based on circumstance, but a delight that is settled in the soul. Let me say that again. Joy, or true happiness, is not a feeling that's based on circumstance. It is a delight that is settled in the soul. And that makes all the difference in the world, where we're not dependent upon external factors in our lives to give us the joy we think we need. And that means that this is a joy, by the way, that can coexist with both sadness and suffering, with pain and tragedy. It's possible to experience this joy in the midst of all these other emotions. There are many things that give joy in the Bible: wine and food, weddings and perfume, perfume victory and battle. but the most frequent cause for joy in the Bible is the Lord Himself. I love Psalm 16:11. It says this, "You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy." And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our joy is not rooted in what we lack. Listen, listen. I need to say this because Christians, so often we believe these truths, we give mental assent to these truths, and yet we live so differently. So many of us in this room, myself included at times in my life, more often than I like to admit, we live for the joy of what this world has to offer, and so often we measure our degree of joy not by what we have, but what we don't have. So we believe if we just get these things in our lives, this is a good message, by the way, for the Christmas season. good You can pass this on to your kids, right? If we just get these things, if I just get a spouse or get a job, a different job, a better job, or more money or more stuff or more things, a better reputation, whatever it is, I'll finally be happy and filled with joy. We tend, listen, as Christians, sadly, to measure our joy by what we don't have instead of trying to measure our joy by what we do have. Listen, we have God. We have the source of all joy already. Interestingly, the question is not do you want joy, but where will you choose to turn for joy? And so you see, when God puts a star in the sky and God gives clear prophecies, prophetic word about the Messiah, here's what he's doing. He's leading people out of the temporary pleasures of sin towards the eternal joy of the Savior. That's what he's doing. He is saying, he is screaming to the world, I am the great joy giver, right? Joy has come to the world. Everything you've been longing for Everything you've been searching for, it is found in me. And as clear as that message is sometimes, there are always obstacles in the way to finding the joy of Jesus, isn't there? We know this. And that is in part because of this, thirdly, Satan, the great joy stealer. Here in this text, we see a fascinating exchange take place between the wise men and Herod. Herod plays this little game of pretending to be interested in worshiping this king. I mean, he calls them um, aside in verse 7. He summons these wise men secretly and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And we know the reason why he wants to know that. He's trying to figure out the age of this child, right? We know what's going to happen in the rest of chapter 2. He is going to go after this child. And he sent them back to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. What a sham. Herod is is a deceitful liar. He is a despicable human being. He is bent not, listen, not on the worship of Jesus, but on the destruction of Jesus. And in verse three, we see um, that when these men walk into town and ask, Where is this king of the Jews? Where is this child who's born king of the Jews? You'll notice what it says about Herod. It says here in verse 3 that he was troubled by this. Why was he so troubled? Well, well I wonder, did you notice the intentional contrast? that Matthew uses to emphasize one of the dominant themes and points in this section of Scripture and throughout his entire book, you'll notice when these men come to uh, Jerusalem, they come to Herod the king. They come asking, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews and notice firstly, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You have to see that word king is used three times and it's used very strategically and very intentionally to draw a stark contrast. The language that's used even in the quote from Micah 5.2, this idea that, the, that the, the one would come, he would be the ruler of Judah. Shepherd my people Israel. They used the term Christ in here earlier, Messiah. All of this is kingly language that is being emphasized, pushed to the front of our minds. What's interesting is that the Magi's question to Herod, actually, the way that it's grammatically constructed, it is done so to emphasize the word "born." Where is the one who is born, King of the Jews? which makes it clear that they ask about who the child is who has legitimate claim to Israel's throne by virtue of his birth. And you see, what this text is reminding us of is that Herod is not the legitimate ruler over the people of God. He is a usurper. And he's troubled. Sure he's troubled. He's troubled because this new child is a threat to his position and to his power. He has grown to love this position in power. And what we see here is that Herod is no child of God, but rather he is a son of the serpent. Rather, again, desiring to worship him, he is bent on destroying him. We will see that in the rest of chapter two as Herod tries to kill every child under the age of two in an attempt to utterly destroy this one child. By the way, the book of Revelation in chapter 12, verse 4, references this. It paints this picture of this ongoing spiritual battle, this demonic, um, satanic attempt to destroy Jesus Christ. In Revelation 12, 4, it says that Satan is a, a serpent who is watching this pregnant woman in the, the pains of labor, and he waits, and he waits so that at the moment she gives birth to this child, he is there to devour the child. Herod is an agent of Satan. He is a satanic representative. He has his own earthly motives, sure, for position and power, but behind all of that, Satan is using him to try and prevent the promised Messiah from accomplishing God's plan of salvation. And at the heart of this passage, there is a battle for the kingdom. There is a battle taking place right here in this passage for who is going to be the king? Who is the one who is going to have the rightful rule and the lasting rule of the kingdom? Interestingly, Herod is not the only one troubled. The word of God says here that all of Jerusalem is troubled. There is a sense here in which Herod has persuaded the Jewish leaders that allegiance to him as king is actually better than allegiance to God as king. They know God's word. This is so fascinating. They know God's word, but they choose to reject God's word. Sound familiar? They have been given clear instructions by God, clear revelation from God, and yet they choose to go against what they know to be true. You see, this has been the battle from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Satan convinces Adam and Eve that joy is, is not found in submission to God. It's found in autonomy from God. You don't need God to be your king. You don't need God to rule af- over you. You will find more joy when you are king of your own life. Did God, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Through his subtle deception, Satan becomes, listen, listen, Satan becomes, by deceiving Adam, the legitimate king appointed by God as a vice regent, Satan deceives him, and he becomes the usurper. He becomes, in a sense, the king over the world, which is why John, in the Gospel of John, three times calls Satan the ruler of this world, which is why he is referred to by Paul as the prince of the power of the air. There is a cosmic battle being played out in this very moment for legitimate authority over the earth, which is, by the way, why later on during the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, Satan is going to tempt him in the wilderness, and he is going to take him up onto a mountaintop, and he is going to offer him all of the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just simply bow down to him. And if Jesus would have done that, he would have, like Adam, forfeited the legitimate authority over the world that he was intended to have by the Father. Satan steals authority through subtle deception. He is a liar. He is a thief. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a usurper. And what we see playing out here in this moment between Herod and this baby is another, listen, phase of this divine drama. Herod's time as ruler and king is essentially up. But more importantly, Satan's time as ruler and king is finally up. You see, the true king has been born. And he has come to reclaim what is rightfully His. He will overcome the serpent and he will do so not by being destroyed at his birth, by dying as a baby, but by hanging on a cross and giving his life as a ransom for many. He will put an end to the power of Satan. He will defang Satan. He will strip away the power and the weaponry of Satan as Colossians chapter 2 says. He will triumph over him in the cross. And Satan, he wants to avoid Jesus reclaiming what is his, but God will not allow it. Jesus will overcome the great serpent, Satan. And this is prefiguring what is to come. But you know what's so interesting is that Satan still attempts to steal our joy even now. Even though the cross has conquered him. Even though he does not have the power and the authority that he once had. Still he attempts to steal our joy. Like Herod, who tries to lead the nation of Israel astray, who promises them position and power to allegiance to him, so too Satan offers us the very same. And Satan cannot stop Jesus. He could not stop Jesus dying on the cross to redeem humanity. So instead, Revelation 12, 17 says this, he decides to make war on the offspring of the woman, the church of Jesus Christ. He knows his time is short, and so with fiery vengeance, he attacks the people of God, and he always has, and he will until Jesus returns. I want to just give you three quick ways that Satan still tries to steal our joy even today, and we see them kind of flowing from this text. The first way is this, um, to reject biblical truth. You want to know Satan steals your joy? He, he tempts you and so does your flesh. Satan's not the only one at work here um, to reject biblical truth. Um, you can be like the Pharisees who know the truth, who believe the truth, and yet who fail to obey the truth. And every moment we're faced with the will of God and our own sinful passions, and we choose to capitulate to the temptation, and we sacrifice the word of God. We are rejecting the word of God as our source of joy. We're saying, God, you're not going to give me the joy I want. This sin is instead. And ultimately what that does is not give us more joy. It gives us temporary pleasure, but it ends up stealing away our lasting joy second way that Satan still attempts to steal our joy, joy is by having us embrace a temporary worldliness. Again, um, Israel is so troubled, so many of these religious elite fail to obey because they had become worldly in nature. They loved what was offered to them by Herod. They loved the position. They loved the power. They loved the prestige. They loved the leash that he gave them to continue to operate the way they wanted to. They had a good thing worked out. In a worldly sense, they have everything they could ever want. And what is clear is that they do not want God as king. And instead, they'll take the temporary joys of worldliness over the eternal joys of godliness. And listen, this is the battle we face every single day of our lives. We are bombarded with the messaging of the world. Satan is tempting us, listen, to capitulate, to give over to what the world has to offer us. And when we do, let's be reminded of what James 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Satan Satan is out to steal our joy. Finally, he does it like this by calling us to enjoy instant gratification. This is one of the most crippling things in the Christian life, and this is one of the greatest signs of immaturity in the Christian life. The desire for instant gratification, the moment sin tempts you, you capitulate and give in. You find yourself not trying to avoid sin, but run towards sin. You crave instant gratification, and that will always end up stealing your joy. Satan offers to us a cheap substitute in sin and selfishness. We find ourselves pursuing joy in everything at times but Jesus. And one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is this principle of delayed gratification. We need to learn to say no to instant gratification because we believe there is greater greater satisfaction and gratification if we choose to wait upon the Lord. You know, these magi really demonstrate this powerful truth to us. They had it all, but they recognized that they had nothing. Their hearts were aching for true joy, and they were willing to seek it and strive for it. They were waiting to go the extra mile for it, and the joy of Jesus would be found by them ultimately. And that joy of Jesus would be expressed through this last point, worship, which is the great joy sustainer. They listened to the king in verse 9 it says. They went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that phrase. They had not met Jesus yet but they had believed they had come to the place where he was and just knowing that they were in the presence of this child this king who had been born king of the Jews their hearts were filled with joy they know in this moment that they have come to the end of the journey they know in this moment that all of the travail and all of the difficulty getting here has been worth it I love this They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, Matthew can't say it any stronger. I mean, they are so overwhelmed with the reality of what is in front of them. And we see that this joy leads them to some place in particular. Look at what it says in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Worship in the scriptures is reserved for God and God alone. The first two commandments in the Ten Commandments remind us that there is no other God but God alone. And man is not to make any images, any idols um, with their hands to bow down and worship. Worship is reserved for God alone. And so just see this. This is a profound statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. And the idea of worship comes from this, this sense of, of worth-ship, of ascribing worth and value. That's what worship is, is to ascribe ultimate value to something. And here we see that these men are ascribing all worth, all value, all glory to this child who is the king of the Jews. And I love this. Listen, we see here just this image this important principle in our lives that joy begets worship. Do you see that? Joy begets worship. In in other words, where you find your joy is what you will choose to worship. So if you find your joy ultimately in possessions, you will find yourself bowing down to the altar of possessions. If you find your joy in your bank account, you will find yourself bowing down to the altar of money and possessions and things If you find your joy in a person, you ultimately find yourself bowing down to them as your God, the one you worship, the one you adore. And the problem with all of those other forms of idolatry is that none of them can bear the weight of worship that God can bear. Every single one of those will crumble under the weight of the worship you place on it. It will not be enough, in other words. It will not satisfy. It will not give you the joy that your heart longs for and craves. These men have found the pearl of great price. They have found in this moment the treasure that their hearts long for, the joy that their souls crave. They fall down at his feet in worship and adoration. They, they uh, unload gifts before him, gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts that are fit for a king, gifts that scream out the royalty of the one who has been born king of the Jews. Costly gifts, demonstrating the costliness of the one, the value of the one they bow before. But can I just show you that the most important gift they give them the most important offering they bring is not the material possessions, not the gold and frankincense and myrrh. It is their very life that they lay down at the feet of the king. This is the ultimate act of worship. Hearts bowed low before the king. And listen, you cannot have joy, the joy of Jesus, until you bow your knee to Jesus. This is where true joy is found. Biblically speaking, worship is reserved, like I said, for God alone. These men are demonstrating where true joy is found, in God, and God alone. They have found joy incarnate, a joy that begets worship, but I want you to see this too. It is a worship that begets joy. There is a cyclical relationship here. Where you place your joy is what you will choose to worship, but what you choose to worship is going to stir your heart with joy. If you want to cultivate joy, in other words, in this life, don't obsess over joy. Fix your eyes on Jesus and allow joy, the joy of Jesus, to well up inside of you. And joy that is to be expressed in worship will begin to sustain you. If you become a person who is dead set, eyes fixed, heart devoted to worshiping Jesus Christ, that worship will sustain your joy through all of the ups and downs in life, through all of the hardship and tragedy and trial, you can remain a person of joy. This is the kind of worship This kind of worship that sustains joy is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Not being conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Giving our lives as a spiritual act of worship each and every day, living in complete surrender to King Jesus. Verse 12 ends this section. It says this, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I love that because it's a statement of which king they chose to obey. Did you catch that? (laughs) They chose King Jesus. We're not gonna listen to King Herod. We're not gonna bow the knee to him. We bow to King Jesus. We follow God and God alone. He is our source of joy. Where are you on this journey? Maybe you're just starting out Maybe you've been on the path for a while wondering where it's headed. Maybe you've been a little bit more concerned about the journey than the end destination. Maybe this morning you can finally see the X that marks the spot or perhaps you've already found it maybe even long ago. This journey is all about finding that X that marks the spot, but listen, for us followers of Jesus Christ, it's all about staying on that X, not leaving from it, not departing in any way from it staying there, bowed down to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, bowed down to the Prince of peace, to the God of all joy, offering ourselves daily and raising our voice continually as an act of worship to the one who is worthy of it all, for He is true and lasting joy to the world. And by the way, church, He is coming again. And when he does, I pray you will hear the words, not just well done, good and faithful servant. I pray even this morning, you long to hear the words, enter into the joy of your master. Father, we pray that this would be our heart's desire. God, to find joy in you now, that gives us confidence of the joy that is yet to come. God, a taste of heaven here and now, a taste, God, of your presence God, believing that in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God, would you overwhelm us with a sense of joy this morning as we fix our gaze upon the joy of Jesus Christ. God, receive now our worship and praise from hearts that are filled with great joy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.